Welcome to the Back Pain Podcast with Rob and Dave, the only show geared specifically to help educate you about your back pain. We talk to the experts to bust the myths, break down the science, and give you all the top tips for living pain-free. So, if you're driving to work, tidy in the house, or even laid up at home in pain, we have something for everyone. Hello, podcast friends. Welcome back to the Back Pain Podcast. This is episode 59, and we're unwrapping the truth about manual therapy with Dr. Chad Cook. So if you've suffered from back pain, you may well have sought the help of a chiropractor, osteopath, physiotherapist, or any other such hands-on therapists. And if you did, the chances are high that you experienced some form of manual therapy. So this could have been in the form of adjustments or joint manipulations. That's the cracking, popping sensation you get from a thrusting type maneuver. Could be massage, stretching, or anything similar really that involves a hands-on treatment. Now, if done correctly by a properly trained professional, this can feel fantastic. But what is actually happening when it's going on? Now, manual therapy is uh, its unfortunately surrounded by a lot of half sciences, myths, and quite frankly, lazy analogies that have been perpetuated over the years. Joints being realigned, scar tissue being broken down, tissues being detoxified. I mean, a lot of this is just outdated science and since been very much disproven. Unfortunately, though, the vernacular can often stay around for years afterwards if it's not addressed and updated. And you know the score, guys. That's where we come in. Here at the Back Pain Podcast, we know that knowledge is power, and by using the proper language to explain what is happening in our treatment rooms, we better educate our patients, that's uh, you guys out there listening with back pain, which leads to less dependency. Now, that means less money spent, less time spent having to seek outside care. It leads to a better outlook on pain and a better outlook on the resilience of your body. Quite frankly, guys, this means more time in the garden playing with the grandkids. Finally, it leads to a better long-term prognosis. Now, this means getting better faster and feeling better longer when compared to using negative or outdated explanations and comparisons. So, in order to explain actually what happens when you get your back manipulated, rubbed, stretched, poked, we reached out to Dr. Chad Cook, who is a clinical researcher and doctor of, uh, yeah, and doctor of physical therapy at Duke University in America, where he has published over 250 peer-reviewed manuscript. Ah, damn, this is the guy you want to be talking to. He breaks down exactly what happens to us when we experience manual types of treatment for our aches and our pains, and also what doesn't happen. He explains why some people get benefits while other people's may not, and which patients or conditions are likely to be benefited the most. So, unfortunately, I was busy with daddy daycare duties for this recording, so it's just Rob and Chad talking, but I've genuinely already listened to this recording twice. Anyone suffering from back pain who's thinking about heading to a practitioner, or anyone who already sees a practitioner, this is the podcast for you guys. It's a great message and a super positive one if you're considering seeking assistance going forwards. Now, in other news, have you guys seen our website recently, and specifically, have you seen our members map? Now, the members map means that if you are suffering with pain and want to find someone to help, be that a surgeon, physiotherapist, 
like a doctor, chiropractor, osteopath. You can simply pop in your address and find someone tried and trusted local to you. Everyone on the list has already been vetted by us and they have our seal of approval to ensure that you will have the best care possible. And in other other news, guys, are you enjoying the podcast? If so, please share it with a friend, share it on your socials, um, uh, message us your feedback. It does mean the world to us, knowing that people are enjoying our content and are benefiting from it. Remember, tag us at the Back Pain Podcast on Instagram or Facebook. Okay, guys, episode 59, Dr. Chad Cook. What the hell is happening in my treatment room when I'm getting manual therapy? Let's go. And we are live. Welcome to the Back Pain Podcast, Tat Chad. Hey, it's my pleasure to be here. Thank you. Fantastic. So let's jump straight into it. Today we're talking about manual therapy. Now this term gets thrown around a lot. Chad, what exactly is, what are we talking about when we discuss manual therapy? Well, it's a lot of things. And I think it has an identity crisis. I I think if you ask 10 clinicians, they'll give you 10 different answers. But As a whole, manual therapy involves skilled use of the hands with the idea of reducing someone's pain, increasing their range of motion, increasing muscle function. But certainly in my eyes, I think it's skilled use of the hands and it can be a number of different techniques, manipulation, massage, mobilization. Fantastic. And this is something which is done by a whole manner of different professions. So this is when you go to see a, a chiropractor, a physiotherapist, and a physical therapist, an osteopath, a massage therapist, what they're doing to you is, is you know, if, if they're touching you with your hands, that is effectively manual therapy in one way or another. I agree. And the the types of techniques may differ, the philosophy behind those techniques, but you see an overlap of use of manual therapies by all of the professions you just mentioned. Brilliant. So then just to clarify, we're talking about manipulation, joint mobilization, massage, stretching, anything else that you would add into that? I would add one more thing. And um, I have a textbook on manual therapy. I read a lot of the manual therapy literature being a researcher. They typically frame it around three areas. One would be joint-based techniques, and that would be manipulation and joint mobilization. Another would be soft tissue-based techniques, and those would be all of the variants of massage that you generally see. And the third would be nerve-based techniques, which would be nerve mobilizations, nerve gliding, those components. They're the least known, I think, of of most individuals. Yeah, they're they're probably not the ones which would jump out when someone, if you ask, you know, what does a physiotherapist do? They probably wouldn't necessarily jump out when they they come to mind. They're a bit rare. And also for more niche conditions as well, I guess, you know, they would probably be, be used. And then something which we discussed as well off air was you know, kind of talking about the differences between mechanisms of manual therapy versus clinical outcomes. You know, are, are they the same thing? You know, if we're talking about a technique and saying, what does it do? Obviously, there's two ways that we can answer that question. You know, what does it do? And then what does it do in terms of clinical outcomes? Is there a difference there? Yeah, that's the that's probably the most important thing that we frame straight away is that manual therapy techniques do have mechanisms. They do a number of things locally at the site where the technique is performed. And they also influence the spinal cord and the brain as well. Those mechanisms can be anything from pain modulation because of release of endorphins or um, cannabinoids or or whatever, uh, to um, influencing pain modulation from the brain. 
this is very different than patient reported outcomes. So if, if your listeners go to a practitioner and they fill out pen and paper tests about how they're doing, they report their health status, those are patient outcomes. So mechanisms, what actually happens with the technique and outcomes, the ultimate result of their health status are two totally different things. Those mechanisms may contribute to a person's outcomes or they may not. And a, and a perfect example I think is opioids. Opioids we know have a very powerful mechanism. They cause a massive reduction in pain. They cause a relaxation effect, suppression of the breathing system or respiratory system. Uh, they cause constipation. That, those are all very powerful mechanisms. But we know that with respect to clinical outcomes, they're not very useful for patients with low back pain. In fact, their effectiveness against other techniques, even something like ibuprofen, they're less effective than those. So something may have a strong mechanism and have a poor clinical outcome. Something may have a mild or low mechanism, but a very strong clinical outcome. It really depends. And, and that bridging those two is actually the direction we need to go as researchers. And I guess that's the skill as well. And that's why the skill which we have as professionals is how we explain these techniques. And I know we'll probably come on to what we talk about contextual factors and how we explain these techniques, which is why an episode like this is so important, because there are so many myths out there and so many poor, you know, explanations of what manual therapy does, you know, and these have been you know, thrown down over the years through historical modules and all sorts of things. And, you know, we know now that what we, how we explain things 20, 30, even five years ago have, has moved on a lot, you know, let alone 100 years ago. So, you know, we're always pushing those boundaries to kind of come up with these correct explanations and meeting in the middle between these clinical you know, outcomes and these actual mechanisms of these techniques. So that's why I'm really glad that we've got you on to help explain actually what's <laughs> exactly what we know at the moment is going on. <laughs> so I, I appreciate you saying what we know at the moment, because you're right, it's dynamic and what we and I think clinicians in good faith explain their techniques based on what they know, what they've been told, what they've read, and because the information we collect, because science is dynamic, we understand things differently over time. Yeah, exactly, and but and that is the foundation of science. You know, science is adapting. You know, we shouldn't be basing our entire professions based on you know a historical module. You know, we're we're always pushing these boundaries, which is. Which is which is exciting, and that's something to be really excited about. So that's why I love love talking about it. So if we break it down, then, and let's talk about we mentioned a couple of techniques there. The first one that we mentioned was the joint based thing. So that was manipulation, which might be called an adjustment. It might be called an HVT, the osteopaths call it, or it's the the back cracking, which is you know often gets thrown around that you know chiropractors are famous for, osteopaths might be famous for, physiotherapists maybe less so, but also it's a technique which they use, you know. What's happening here? You know, when we when we get a, a crack from a joint, what is that? Yeah, so the crack is also called a cavitation. And uh, originally in the 1800s, early 1900s, they thought it was you're putting a joint back in place and that cracking sound is the, the joint realigning. Uh, they realized in the 60s and 70s that that actually wasn't the case. And the literature then in the 80s and 90s really was framed around the idea that you're you're causing a traction technique in other words you're pulling the joint rapidly apart typically when in 250 to 300 milliseconds so it's a very fast movement and that fast movement creates a vacuum within the joint the gases within the synovial fluid which is present in all synovial joints all of the gliding and moving 
joints within the body, then expands rapidly and then dissolves quickly into the gases or into the uh, fluid itself. And as soon as it, that those gases dissolve, that's the pop that you typically hear. This is why generally those that use manipulation, they'll get a one pop every 20 minutes because it takes a while for those gases to dissolve back into the synovial fluid. So cracking biologically is just gases essentially popping. And it's not something special. There is some literature that suggests that a cavitation is related to slightly greater pain relief, but there isn't any literature that relates the crack or the pop to better clinical outcomes. Again, those are two different things, mechanisms versus patient outcomes. So you know, you don't have to have, you know, if you see someone and they, they, they're attempting to do manipulation and it doesn't necessarily make a loud pop, that isn't, you know, there's some evidence that says that you might not have a clinical, uh, as good clinical outcome, but the same movement happens at the joint. You know, it still goes through that same range of motion. It still stretches. It still moves a bit. It does. And the, so the, the crack is not essential for success. Um, most clinicians will attempt to do another adjustment or manipulation or force-based movement, but they don't necessarily have to. The movement studies that have looked at it, it, it moves the same amount. The structures around it are stimulated. There's slightly less stimulation of muscle if there's not that cavitation. But again, these are so instrumentally minor that it probably doesn't make a difference. And then does it matter who does it? So, you know, does anyone own manipulation? You know, if you're depending on the certificate on your wall, if you have a manipulation of your lumbar spine or your cervical spine, is it the same thing, whoever does it? So Rob, I'll answer that two ways. First of all, the, with respect to clinical outcomes, the, the engagement that you have with the clinician. I really liked a previous podcast you had where um, an individual was talking about how to marry the clinician to the patient. And it's about engagement, spending time with that clinician who respects you and listens to you and works with you in, the, in that journey to recovery. And, and I would argue that you find the right one, it doesn't matter who that clinician is. It can be an osteopath, physio, chiro, doesn't matter. So the clinical outcomes piece, I think, is essential that you feel strongly attached to the clinician you're working with. They have actually looked at the mechanisms of different providers, and a, a technique is a technique is a technique. There's no difference of what happens physiologically. If it's performed by a chiro, a, an osteopath, a physio, it really doesn't matter. There are bigger differences between sexes, um, men and women. Um, men tend to be a little quicker on their techniques. They tend to use a little bit more force, but it doesn't change the mechanism itself. So, so far, no difference across the professions with respect to that. So that's good to know. So if someone is having manipulation, it shouldn't matter whatever the practitioner is they're seeing, which is should, should give people some confidence. And then one of them, the other myths which I wanted to talk about, you alluded to a little bit as well, was, you know, you said it doesn't bones don't move back into place so we used to think that bones popped out of place and their manipulation would realign them or pop them back in again but we know now that that's not correct right you you are correct and, and a part of it there are two parts to it the first part is there were whenever individuals had pain especially along the spine there was an assumption that something was out of place something was out of position and i think both the chiropractic and uh, osteopathic professions both had their theories on what was actually going on with that well, as science caught up with philosophy, they realized that nothing was really out of place. 
So the second piece to that was that, well, maybe there's some additional movement then that we realign something afterwards. Well, they've used some very sophisticated 3D movement assessment techniques, and they have found that the amount of movement that actually occurs after a manipulation is so slight that it's probably within the measurement error of the instrument. So realigning the pelvis with the manipulation, realigning the back, yes, there's a slight difference between pre and post manipulation, but it's, again, it's so slight that it probably doesn't mean anything. So, so when someone can suddenly bend over and touch their toes, but they couldn't go past their knees before, it's not because their pelvis is now realigned back into place. It's arguably for other factors that, uh, that make those large changes. Yeah, Rob, you're spot on. And those other factors, and this has been shown in multiple studies, and those are, these are animal studies and human studies, is that you will see a difference in the muscle response around that joint after a manipulation or a mobilization. The muscle no longer guards or splints around that joint. And that's probably why you see range of motion gains with that. And there is some emerging study that suggests that the performance of the muscle tends to improve a little bit with manipulation as well. There are only a couple studies that have looked at this, but it's uh, encouraging that maybe muscle performance might be primed with the manipulation. Whether or not that's going to lead to better overall performance, I, I don't think we know that yet. Okay. So when someone then feels better after a manipulation, and we know that some people do, some people don't, you know, what, what is actually happening? Why does someone then feel better? If it's not realigning, it's not going back into place, what are we talking about when, I guess, in terms of both mechanisms and clinical outcomes, why would someone feel better? Well, I'll talk about mechanisms first, because I, I was astounded at the amount of literature that has actually been dedicated to this. I, I would argue there's anywhere from 600 to 800 studies that have looked at this, both animal studies and human-based studies. So there, we know that manipulation will actually freeze up endorphins. The body creates its own endorphins, which are a form of opioids, its own cannabinoids, which are similar to when a person smokes marijuana, which are both pain-relieving mechanisms. There are also biomarkers associated with the immune system that are affected from a manipulation. There are also pro-inflammatory biomarkers that are influenced with the manipulation, mobilization, massage, other techniques. So there are a number of things that are going on. Researchers, I think, are most confident that the biggest reason people feel pain or a well-being after manipulation is probably the release of the endorphins and um, cannabinoids and an influence to the brain and how the brain actually helps control pain modulation within the body. That's well-documented. And most likely that's why people experience um, pain relief immediately after a joint manipulation. Clinical outcomes, it's likely due to a number of factors, including contextual factors. And contextual factors are essentially what a person thinks about what this technique means to them, where it fits within their overall schema. Placebo even fits within contextual factors. So all of these things packaged together can lead to a person behaving differently, becoming more active, and all of the ingredients that are related to improved clinical outcomes. So is that a reason, if we look at those those other factors outside of the manipulation, why someone may have had a treatment which included manipulation previously and didn't feel any relief, and then vice versa, may have seen someone else three weeks later 
for the same, effectively the same treatment. And we know it doesn't really matter in terms of, you know, the actual manipulation is a manipulation. You know, they might feel they, that it was a better one, you know, or that, you know, that one really got it, you know, that one really got back into place. You know, is it likely that there are other factors at play that, you know, play in to this added benefit? It is. And those, especially contextual schema is one of the most important things that I think as a clinician, we don't always think about this. And as patients, we think about it, but we don't, we can't wrap our arms around our own schema. This would be if I had low back pain, mentally, there are certain things that I think that I need to improve this low back pain. And you've worked with so many patients. It's, you know, I think I need surgery. I think I need a manipulation. I think I need medication. I think I need to start exercising. If your intervention fits their meaning schema, then the intervention tends to work better. Now, they may have had just a bad experience previously with manual therapy and and maybe the next manual therapist they worked with just engage them the right way, walk them through the process better. There may be differences within that. But most of the time, it's whether or not that technique fits within their overall meaning scheme. So in an, could I rephrase that by saying, if I really believe it and I really want it and I really think it's going to work, that's likely to work for me. Is that another? Is that kind of right in saying that? You are correct. In fact, what's interesting is there's actually two studies that have looked at the role of patient expectations toward manual therapy and whether that influences overall patient outcomes. And both studies actually supported that. There's even two studies that have looked at whether or not the clinician thinks manual therapy will work for that patient. And they have also shown that that thought process by the clinician influences the patient outcomes. So there's a subconscious overflow that influences the patients from the clinician. If you marry the two together, then you're probably going to see a, a pretty positive outcome. But manual therapy is not the only area in which this is really, really powerful. Surgery is the strongest area where expectation really dictates a person's recovery. R- regardless if a person even receives a, a placebo surgery, if their expectation is that surgery is what they really need to, to get better, they, t- they tend to only get better with surgery. That's fascinating. <laughs> That's it really is. interesting, it's, it's, isn't it's it? It's amazing. So that, does that work conversely? So if you really don't want to have any manual therapy or really don't want to be manipulated and it happens to you, does it then, is, will it then likely that it's not going to work or have a poor outcome? I know they're two different things. But, uh... You are spot on. It absolutely does. So, so that nocebo response, placebo being that you believe something that, that is in, inert is actually going to help, nocebo would be something inert that you think is going to make them worse. But anytime that you go against a patient's expectations, you will see a reduction in their overall patient outcomes. So it is about, a lot of it is about matching expectations, matching the schema of the patient, and then also knowing as a clinician what is useful for them and, and having, and, and bargaining with that patient and, and so that you two come together and make a, a, a shared decision. Perfect. So it's meeting the patient where they're at, you know, and I like to think that, you know, clinicians listening to this and also patients listening to this, you know, this is aimed at, at people who are struggling with back pain. 
is that you know it, any treatment that you have whether that's a, a massage therapist a chiropractor a, a surgeon they should be meeting you in the middle you know you, it's a joint journey that you're going on with you being the most important person in that conversation so you know your goals and your your aspirations should be the forefront of that so that should, uh, should always be no one should be dictating to you 100% that this is the only solution it's a it's a two-way conversation a big misconception about shared decision making is that clinicians are giving up their ability to help that patient. Shared decision making is is finding a common um, joint belief in what is going to help that patient. So that that's essential, I think, for the benefit of moving forward with with most pa- most patients. Brilliant, fantastic. So I guess the ultimate question then about if we stick to manipulation is how effective is it? You know, is this something which is effective for back pain? Is it something which is a short-term benefit for back pain? Where do we sit on that in looking at the evidence? Well, as you know, the manipulation is in most clinical practice guidelines for low back pain. So it is recommended as a non-surgical intervention, and it tends to have a small to moderate effect. It tends to be no better than exercise, no better than cognitive behavioral therapy, but it's also just as good as those. So it is recommended. It has a small to moderate effect, but all interventions for low back pain have a small to moderate effect. So my feeling is, is that we'll take what we've got. If you match it to patient preferences, meet in the middle with shared decision-making, you improve your likelihood of success. And as you know, from having this podcast, there is no silver bullet for low back pain. So small victories are actually pretty large victories for low back pain. Fantastic. And then we know that when these are combined together, you know, with manipulation or manual therapy and then exercise and a cognitive based approach or all these together, you know, potentially even have a more powerful effect. You know, none of these are used in in isolation, I guess, uh, 100 percent of the time. And the majority of clinical practice guidelines would support what you just said, that it's used in conjunction with other active based therapies. And I think that's if you, if you run into a clinician and they're only using passive-based therapies, maybe they're heating a person up, they're cracking them, then they're cooling them down, you know, that's not going to be something that is going to be sustaining for that patient. It needs to be used as a segue to more of an active approach, potentially a lifestyle and behavioral change by the patient. And it takes two to tango. So a lot of it is making sure the clinician guides that patient to the direction they need to go, and then the patient takes the baton and actually moves forward. Brilliant. So it's giving them that window to allow them to move more, to do more exercise, to improve their function, to go about their activities of daily living with potentially less pain, which then we we enter that upward spiral where because of that more movement and because we can do more exercise, we then ultimately have less pain again. So then, we, you know, this this knock on effect, I guess. So everything works together. You know, Rob, it's interesting. If you look at the literature, you know, everybody here would agree that lifestyle a good diet, exercise, being healthy, those are probably the best things that a, patients can do for low back pain. And they typically do it while being formally managed by a clinician. As soon as those symptoms abate, um, that tends to go out the window. And we, 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 we don't see those long-term lifestyle changes. It's very hard to change behaviors. And you know, and I'm the first to admit that it's hard to change the negative behaviors I have. So the right thing to do isn't always what is done. Um, but the best we can do as clinicians is certainly, as you mentioned, window, open that window for the right thing to be done. And then moving forward from there. 
brilliant. I love that. So let's move on to the next most common, I say next most common, the other very common type of manual therapy, which is massage. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we talked about the joint-based techniques and now we're going to the muscle-based techniques. So in, in massage, you know, should we, you know, am I right in saying that includes things like active release, just generic sports massage, you know, holistic type massage, all of those type of muscle-based therapies? Yeah, so I'm a believer that massage, you have to actually touch your patient. I know there are certain massages um, that are more dubious where you don't even touch your patient. And, you know, they're all, I mean, if you look at Wikipedia, there are a litany of different techniques. But I'm in agreement that during a massage-based technique, you are kneading, rubbing, um, putting pressure on tissues, muscle, um, fascia, and other structures. And does that include the the tool base? So what people might call instrument assisted massage. So it might be your gua sha, where people use the shiny butter knives and and scrape them on skins, or massage guns. Would you include those in the same? Um, although you're not technically touching, you kind of almost are at the same time. Yeah, I think I think in this particular case, you can give them a pass because they have the, the underlying philosophies behind the tools instead of the hands are the same. So the tools should just assist the hands and may actually provide a more well theoretically a more effective and focused component of massage based intervention so i would i would include those into massage brilliant so then let's let's cover that so sport so you're having a massage and you're rubbing a muscle in the back what is happening here and then we can go back into those mechanism versus clinical outcomes if you wish in terms of what so what is going on so let's talk let's talk mechanisms first uh, massage hasn't had quite the level of study as joint manipulation, joint mobilization, but there is research that suggests that there's a pretty massive dopamine release with massage, especially a, a longer term massage, the, a deeper massage. There's also a serotonin release. So the dopamine release will give that well-being feeling that a person has, same kind of feeling that someone has when they're in love or when they're um, holding a baby for the first time. Serotonin is a social uh, neurotransmitter. So that, that will uh, that makes someone feel connected socially to others. There is also research that suggests endorphin release and cannabinoid release. So those are pain modulators within the body. So evidence does suggest that massage does something similar that you would see with uh, joint manipulation, joint mobilization. There are other theories around massage that aren't as substantiated. There is some blood circulation increase but it tends to be surface only. It's not very deep. In fact, if you really want to increase your blood circulation, exercise will do a much more effective job for muscle and deeper tissue. And as far as you'll often hear that massage also detoxes an area, um, removes waste products, et cetera, that is less substantiated. With the exception of a lymphatic drainage, which is kind of an exceptional based massage, and that might be in a case where um, a lady has a, or, or a man has a uh, radical mastectomy after cancer, and they will have a, a massive inflammation of, of their arm. And it's a very different technique. It's a much lighter technique, more focused, long term. That does seem to decongest the upper extremity, but most massage doesn't really do that, and certainly not massage to the back. Perfect. So we're rub- we're rubbing that muscle. We're having that you know slight increased circulation. Are we breaking down any any muscle knots, any adhesions or scar tissue? I know that's another thing that gets 
spoken about a lot of uh, you know to improve that range of motion we need to you know get rid of those adhesions is that something which 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 happens do we know that let's talk about muscle knots first and um if you don't mind that that you do see a relaxation of muscles similar to what a manipulation does. So the tonic guarding or the splinting of the muscle around that particular area can relax after a massage. It doesn't really realign fibers or, um, you know, change the direction, directionality of the fibers or anything, which you may read in textbooks. It really hasn't been shown to do that. Adhesions are a different story. If you look at the literature on adhesions, it's very mixed. Uh, for starters, for as long as we've been doing this, there's just hardly any research to really substantiate why we're doing it. There, there is research on burn victims. The majority of the research suggests that what it probably does is reduces anxiety to movement more so than anything with burn victims. It doesn't really elongate tissue or reline tissue. With non-burn victims, uh, maybe someone has had a surgery. There's quite a bit of literature around the hand because there's a lot of adhesion type work around the hand. It suggests improvement in clinical outcomes, but mechanisms wise, the scar isn't necessarily more pliable or loose with that. And there's actually quite a bit of research around the abdomen. And after individuals will get an abdomen surgery and working on that, you'll see some extensibility changes in the scar tissue, not substantial but it does seem to affect clinical outcomes. There's literally nothing in the back with respect to adhesions or, or any research to substantiate that. So when someone, again, feels better, they, they can rotate further or bend down and touch their toes. Again, th those changes are, are from other mechanisms as opposed to because you've lengthened that muscle with your hand. You're correct. Yeah, and, and by the way, there's nothing wrong with that. Those other mechanisms are actually quite useful. So if you're relaxing muscle, you're improving range of motion, you're improving well-being, you're, you're, you're um, triggering the body's own pain modulation system so that they have pain reduction, those, those are all victories, I think. Oh, definitely. So the, the effect you're having with your hands is effectively on the brain and you're, you're changing those, those pain modulating systems, which, you know, work in the similar ways to, 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 what, to what opioids and other, you know, pharmacological interventions do. So you're changing the structures in the brain to change the brain, to change the muscle, as opposed to physically changing the muscle itself. Indeed. Yeah. And, and, it, it, and it, what's interesting is what's different about taking external drugs like opioids versus the body's own opioid system is that when the body releases its own opioid system, it is localized to that given area versus if you take a drug externally, you'll get that effect throughout your body. That's why you see dangerous things such as suppression of the respiratory system. Uh, it affects organs. It affects especially the GI system. You won't see that with the body's development of its own opioids. It's, it's a much more powerful, refined system if you can do it um, internally versus externally. No, that that's sort of sense. And, and I said, who who doesn't like a massage? Everyone likes being massaged. It, you know, it it feels nice, and uh, it you know we know it, it works. Does it work in terms of you know who benefits? Is it similar to manipulations when someone really thinks that they need a massage and they have a massage? And it, is it likely that they, that they would feel better? It would fall into the same bucket as all the manual therapy te based techniques. That contextually, you want to match the intervention with the patient's expectations, with their schema, with what they think is best for them. So yes, it, it would fit within that same 
um, realm as joint manipulation, joint mobilization. Yeah. And do we know clinically whether it's, does it, I know you said it hasn't been researched quite as much as something like manipulation. Does it, is it have any more or less effect in terms for low back pain? You know, do we know is one more effective or again, is that completely going back to that, that schema and what that patient believes? What we know as far as their effect, and that would be, and when we say strength of effect, it's just how much better is it against a comparison intervention? So if we compared massage versus exercise or massage versus medication, the problem with massages, the studies are, they tend to be fairly biased and they, and, and poorly done. So they do show a stronger effect than comparison interventions, but because the studies are weaker in design, um, most researchers will not go out on the limb and say massage is better than joint manipulation. I would argue that if, if we look at it just population-wise, all the interventions are about the same. So you do want to match interventions. Uh, so if, if someone said, you know, I've had manipulation before, I really don't like it, I don't feel like I'm in control, but I do like soft tissue mobilization or massage, then it's perfectly fine to shift gears and go toward massage and soft tissue mobilization. You're going to get a lot of the same mechanistic effects with that as you get with other forms of manual therapies. I like that. That, that brings me on to another question, which someone actually I posted in our Facebook group, the sciatica and back pain support group, which is on, a, on Facebook. So everyone's welcome to welcome to join that one. But someone said, you know, my my clinician, and I won't go into any detail, but my clinician said I need to be manipulated, but I don't want to be manipulated. You know, is there ever a case that you need to have a particular treatment that you don't want? You know, so as you said, it's less likely to have an outcome. But if someone's not getting any benefit, but they really don't want to be manipulated, there's not really a case that they need to have it, is there? I can't think of a case, um, not for spinal manipulation, because it doesn't do what we thought philosophically it did, which was realign structures. A person isn't out of line, so to speak. So they don't need to be re put back into place or, or, or something of that nature. So no, no, I wouldn't agree with that at all. Um, I don't think somebody needs Good. to be manipulated. And I, I certainly wouldn't try to push a square peg in a round hole. Um, manipulation is a tool. It is a technique used by clinicians, by a lot of different clinicians, and it may or may, may not be a nice match for the patient in front of you. I love that. That's that's really that should hopefully give someone some confidence that if they're not happy, they can they can find someone different. So, and then we talked a little bit about those tight muscles and you know, when muscles get tight in them, whether it's the back, the neck, whatever those areas are. Is it possible to feel those? So can a clinician feel an area knowing that it's tight and it's a problematic area, a problematic area? Or, you know, is that completely individual? I think it depends. So if, if you're working with a clinician who is poking around on you and, and talking about muscle imbalances, that this muscle is, is stretched out, this muscle is tight, I can feel it by palpating it, um, I would be a little concerned about that because most likely they're not feeling tight muscles and in a philosophical approach like that. However, if you're injured, like if someone has a hamstring injury or someone strained their hamstring or, or other, another large muscle group, clinicians have been shown to be able to isolate the area that is injured, but that's different than tight muscle. So I, I think, and, and there are a lot of clinicians that really, they, they have adopted this theory that there are these huge muscle imbalances in the body and that's why people are having some problems and they use this in clinical practice and some of them it's successful on their hands and 
And I think it probably has a lot to do with contextual factors and blending other uh, behavioral elements into that. But it, there's a very weak association between that sort of approach of feeling type muscles and having any positive overall outcome treatment-wise with the patient. Brilliant. Now that's a like, good, good answer. I like that. Well answered to that one. <laughs> Difficult question. And then I guess lastly on, on massage, does it matter who does it? So if someone has, is having a massage from their partner or their you know, child or parent or something like that because they're a bit sore compared to seeing a massage therapist, you know, is the same thing happening? So I'm not going to say that some massage therapists don't develop uh, better skills over time because if you've, you know, if, if you've met enough massage therapists and have worked on on you, you can tell that those that are really talented in their approach versus those who may be novice or don't care or if you, know, if you have your wife work on your neck or something of that sort of thing. Um, but so I would say that there are some more skilled, but if we, if we tore away the onion layers and look at mechanistically as what's happening, you're seeing the same mechanisms that happen. So I think it, if you wanna marry the contextual piece of what you feel and what you think is happening with what is actually happening at a biological level, you'll probably get a better outcome. But it, no, if you, if, you can, if you can have a family member or a friend or whatever continue that care process outside the time they're seeing the clinician, I would say that's a, a job well done. Good, and that's something which I know that a lot of clinicians will do. They will you know, have a, a partner in the room and they say, you know, when, when their neck is sore, you can do this gently or try this or you know, gently rub this area if it feels a bit sore and it, and it aids it. So that kind of partner-assisted kind of showing, you know, therapists showing the family members what they can do is a really beneficial, beneficial term, beneficial, beneficial idea, I guess. So I, I for people agree. listening, yeah. ask. Yeah, I'll go and ask your clinician and say, you know, what can my partner do to help? And, you know, we did an episode on this two weeks ago, Ask Me Anything. And that was one of those questions. What can my partner do to help? Yeah, ask your clinicians, ask what you, what massage techniques that you might be able to do to aid when you're having a a particularly bad day. And Rob, one study that was done um, actually looked at, because it does release serotonin and serotonin is a social drug. So it actually bonds the person who's receiving the massage to that individual, whether it be a caregiver or a loved one or whatever. So there's a bonding element associated with that with the release of the neurotransmitter. Nothing wrong with that. Um, so there, there, that's an added bonus in addition to the pain relieving component. So especially if you really don't like that person, it might be a way to help help gain a bit more rapport. <laughs> Is that... But then if you don't like the person, maybe it might not be as effective. So, you know, that's a whole, a whole nother bag of worms that we can get into a different day. So are there, are there any other myths around there, you know, that, we, that you feel that patients need to hear about manual therapy that, you know, that really get your back up or anything that we haven't kind of touched on today talking about manual therapy myths? You know, that's a great question. I, I, uh, there are the idea that a technique has to be performed a certain way is, is certainly a, a big myth. And, and that is going to absolutely rub some expert clinicians the wrong way who, who have sunk a, a ton of time into their training, but it doesn't seem to make that big of a difference. And the, other, the also another area is specificity. Uh, we used to, we're trained and we have always thought that we have to perform a technique directly on the area that we consider to be the guilty area or the injured area. And the data 
on clinical outcomes suggests that you don't have to be specific with your manipulation. Those are two things that are very difficult to, to stomach uh, for those who've spent years in training. Um, I, I went through a program that was three years long and I, I learned every philosophical theory in the world. And then I learned later that that probably doesn't matter. Um, but we know mechanistically a specific approach tends to be about the same as a non-specific approach. So I, I think those two myths need to be put out there. Um, it, it probably is going to save a lot of people, clinicians, a lot of consternation, a lot of time. Um, and for patients, uh, you don't necessarily need to seek out the individual that has the 15 diplomas on the wall of specialized training. Yeah, and that goes back to that what you said at the beginning: a manipulation is a manipulation is a manipulation. So it's that. So does that mean if you are, you know, having a manipulation done of your, you know, L five, you know, lumbar vertebra, the one at the base of the spine, compared to any of the others, the outcome is very similar. You know, whether you're going targeting that, if you even can target that one, compared to a generic, uh, you know, not a generic one, but you know, a, just a, a normal lumbar manipulation. Yeah, it just needs to be regional. It doesn't necessarily need to be specific to that particular joint segment, you're going to get overflow of the me mechanistic benefits from that particular ma manipulation. Would you believe there are eight comparative studies that have actually looked at that, including one of ours that we published in 2016? And we, when we designed the study, we tried to make it such a landslide to assist a specific approach. And we made the nonspecific approach such a sham procedure. We just bounced on the spine. And the outcomes were the same <laughs> at, at six months, at three months, at two weeks, it was always the same. So, so that either gives people loads of confidence or it gives people less confidence. So, you know, well, I'll let people <laughs> decide depending on, depending on who's listening. Well, you know, Chad, that's brilliant. You know, that's really kind of exactly what we we're after. Just clearing up some myths, you know, we're just, we're spinning the positives here. We're hoping that people are, are you know, getting the good information from their clinicians. And that's what we're here for, you know, to kind of bust those myths make sure that people aren't, you know, kind of peddling nonsense, really, which is all, all of what we're what we're here for. So thank you so much for taking the time to to talk to us today. I know that you're a very busy man and you're very busy researching this, you know, a lot of the time as well as in clinical practice. So thank you ever so much. Rob, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Fantastic. And so where can people go to out to find, can people go anywhere to find out more about you? Are you on the social media? Are we, are we, are we hiding away from all of that? I am on one social media platform. I'm on Twitter. And I'm at, at Chad Cook PT, and I don't tweet nonsense. I just typically tweet research that I've been a part of, part of, or research that I find meaningful. So at at Chad Cook PT, and then but no other uh, social media platforms. And if you're interested in my research work, if, if you go to PubMed, type in Chad Cook, you'll see a number of studies that I've performed. Um, I've I've been involved in 62 different manual therapy studies. So, you know, I, I do actually study what I talk about. Uh, so <laughs> those are the two things that's, I would recommend. That's quite a lot. <laughs> to, to, to get into the double figures for most people is pretty impressive, but to get into the in, into the mid 60s is, is pretty, is uh, very impressive. So well done <laughs> for that. So oh, there's a lot, of, a lot of time spent working. So thank you for what you're doing for our, for our profession. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Brilliant. Well, that's it from me. I know Dave's, uh, D Dave's here as well somewhere, but uh, that's also it from him. Thank you everyone for listening and we will catch you on the next episode. Enjoy. Enjoy.